Christchurch, New Mulham, Sunday the 18th of June 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Learning from the Early Church, The Spirit of Prayer. So, the question, how should we pray? How should we pray? Particularly when we're worried about something or we're in a difficult situation. Perhaps particularly when we're being badly treated or oppressed in some way. Particularly when what we're up against or those people that we're concerned about are up against forces that seem overwhelming in their power. We know that we're meant to pray to God in those circumstances, don't we? But how should we pray? And what should we expect to happen when we do so? Now, those are really good questions, aren't they? And in that passage that we had read by Harriet a few moments ago, we get some good answers to those questions. Because that passage is all about how the Holy Spirit directed the early Christians to pray in just that sort of difficult situation. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a passage that follows the sequence of events that we've been looking at in the Acts of the Apostles where Peter and John, back in chapter 3 of Acts, and I think we've got a picture of this, they heal a lame man in Jesus' name. Have you got the picture there, David? Okay, right. And uh, following that healing, they preach about the resurrection of Jesus, and they're then ordered by the Jewish council or the Sanhedrin not to do this. That's the stuff we read about, as I say, in Acts chapter 3 and then Acts chapter 4. And Peter and John are defiant in the face of that instruction to quieten down. They're defiant about continuing to obey God and to speak in the name of Jesus. And so after further threats, that council or Sanhedrin eventually lets them go. But it's been an unsettling experience. And after it was over, in the last part of Acts chapter 4, we hear about how the early Christians prayed about it. Now, we've lost the visuals, it seems. We, okay, so let's just have them up there. Let's have those three pictures up there if they're available, are they? Okay, we got, we got visuals at all. So there you've got Peter and John in front of the Sanhedrin. And uh, as I say, they're ordered not to speak about Jesus anymore. And uh, they're defiant, but they're let go. And then we hear about how they return to the Christian community and the early Christians prayed about this situation. This is the third picture that should be coming up. No, go back a bit, David. So basically, how, do we, how does the Holy Spirit instruct the Christians to pray? Well, there are several things that we learn, seven things that we can draw out of this passage to help us think about how the Holy Spirit might be leading us to pray when we encounter our own troubles within the world. And the first thing is that thing we just saw a minute ago, okay, that Peter and John, this is the first thing we see in this passage, they report back to their fellow Christians what had happened. Now, this might seem fairly obvious, but it's the vital prelude to the prayer that takes place. And it reflects Peter and John's belief that they and the other followers of Jesus were one single 
family. You see, sharing those things that we're concerned about with Christian friends, that has a value even before we get to prayer, doesn't it? And that's because it means when we share our problems with others, that that load that we're carrying is being shared. Very often, though, that is easier said than done. Because reporting to other Christians the difficulties that we're having or the situations that we're involved in, that involves making ourselves vulnerable. Because when we do that, we're admitting that we need support. Now, those of us who are men can often find that a particular hurdle. And on Father's Day, as well as affirming men, it's good to recognise some of the struggles that men can particularly have. But it's vital. This point about being prepared to share our troubles, our difficulties, the situations that we're in with other believers. That's often the start of us discovering the power of prayer and the difference that it can make. Because it leads on to the second point from this passage, which is that those early Christians, those believers, were together in prayer. After Peter and John had reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and the other believers had heard about this, we're told that they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, prayer can be individual, and it's important that we do learn to pray for ourselves. But building on the point that I've just made, the biggest emphasis really upon prayer should be us doing it together with other Christians. Because Jesus said that famous phrase, didn't he, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now that doesn't just point to the value of church prayer meetings, although they have an important role, but it points to the importance of home groups, those small groups, uh, which we have several of at Christchurch, that meet together regularly for study, support of one another, and vitally for prayer. Those of you who are already in home groups or have been in them in the past know the difference that prayer can make when you do it with a group of trusted friends and do talk to me if you're interested in joining a home group because we can make sure that there's one for you. But it doesn't even have to be that formal. Prayer together with other Christians. I've tried to develop the habit where appropriate of saying to people when they share a particular difficulty with me, if uh, it's, uh, as I say, appropriate to do this, saying to them, do you mind if I say a quick prayer about it? People can be quite surprised when they get that response, but my experience is that they're always grateful because they sense immediately, even before that prayer is said, that that burden that they're carrying is then being shared and it makes a massive difference. Of course, ultimately, it's been shared with God. But what brings that particularly home is when it's being shared with a fellow follower of Jesus. It does take a bit of time to develop that habit. It's perhaps a much easier one for a vicar uh, to do uh, than, uh, than other Christians, perhaps. Perhaps it seems a bit less odd when someone in a collar does it. But it does make a big difference and I think it's a habit that we could develop more fully when a fellow Christian shares something that they're worried about or concerned about 
being able to say, do you mind if I say a quick prayer about it? And the less fluent and grand and impressive that prayer is, the better. If it's just very simple, bringing that matter before God and asking for his help. So that's a couple of things that we learn from this passage before actually any prayer is even said. But once prayer is said in this passage, there's a key third point that we notice, and it's this. Those believers, when they pray, the first words that they utter are to recognise and call upon God's sovereignty over the world. That's the very first thing that happens within this prayer. They don't jump straight towards what they're asking God for. They recognise and call upon God's sovereignty over the world. Here are the words that they say coming up now. They say this, Sovereign Lord, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. So is that just appropriately pious introduction before they get on to asking God for what they really want to say to him? Or is it more than that? Well, it is more than that. It's a really vital part of this prayer. Because what these early believers were doing and acknowledging before they asked God for anything, they were acknowledging that he is the one in control of this world and everything within it. And as soon as we acknowledge that, it makes a huge difference. Because what we're reminding ourselves is that the world isn't a random place, somewhere full of chaos, but it's somewhere that's under the authority of Almighty God. A few weeks ago, I spoke about the ascension of Jesus, and that's why I put it in that picture a few minutes ago. And its importance in showing us that Jesus is already reigning in heaven, and therefore, is already ruling over the earth. And recognising that makes a massive difference to our prayers, especially when it's balanced by a fourth point about prayer coming out from this passage, which is this, the recognition of those early Christians that this sovereignty of God and Jesus is constantly being challenged by a rebellious world. Those believers, they quote from the Old Testament in their prayer, they quote from Psalm 2, and the Holy Spirit's words through King David, declaring this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the world take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The thing that stops our acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over this world being pious claptrap is when we acknowledge at the same time that a spiritual battle is going on between God's anointed ruler, Jesus, and all of those powers that refuse to acknowledge him. Now, I don't know how you feel about acknowledging the existence of a spiritual battle going on behind the hardships and difficulties that we face and encounter. Some people believe that's a rather superstitious thing to do. But for me, it's actually really liberating. Because acknowledging the existence of a spiritual battle going on gives a dignity and importance to those hardships that we're suffering, particularly when they're the result of oppression. We're able to see that suffering as part of the lot that will always come the way of those who follow Jesus. 
because the powers of evil are real and they exist and they don't like that. And it was Jesus himself who said in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. But there's another point about recognising the existence of a spiritual battle going on, which is this. It enables us to keep on loving those who unwittingly, in most cases, are part of this. In his letter to the Ephesians, a passage we'll be looking at tomorrow night at Sunday School for Grown-Ups, we looked at last Sunday uh, in the, uh, the original session of that, it says these words. Paul says, just before that famous passage where he talks about the armour of God, says this, our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, if we acknowledge that, we can pray strongly against those forces while continuing to love those people who are treating us badly. And we continue to pray for them, as Jesus also told us to. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, didn't he? Now, that's not easy. Of course it's not. But it becomes much more possible for us to pray for and seek to continue loving those people who are oppressing us when we acknowledge that the situation that we're in, particularly as followers of Jesus, is an almighty tussle, quite literally, between God's anointed ruler Jesus and those powers that he defeated when he died, but which are still in rebellion against his rule. Acknowledging a spiritual battle is basically something that enables us to, as I say, continue loving those people who unwittingly are perhaps being used as instruments of powers beyond their comprehension. And that's what we see in the fifth point about prayer from this passage, because we see the believers apply this spiritual interpretation to their situation. In that prayer, they mention Herod and Pontius Pilate, who just weeks before had conspired against God's anointed king in Jesus and put him to death. But as well as acknowledging that this was all part of a world in rebellion against God, we see another statement of God's sovereignty over what was happening when they say this. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Sometimes really difficult to see what God is up to when tough and difficult things happen in our lives. We can be sorely tempted to think that God either doesn't care or that he's not really in charge. It takes a real step of faith to believe that God, however things might look, does care and is in control and through the bad things that he is allowing to happen is somehow, in some strange way, working towards the purpose of fully revealing his love. The challenge to believe that is the challenge we face every time we come before God in prayer. And that's why it's so much easier not to pray about the things that we're worried about and just fret about them and just get worked up. But God wants us instead to place all of those things, just as the early believers did, 
within this paradigm or model that the Bible supplies us with of a God who is sovereign over this world in and through Jesus Christ and is in control of those dark spiritual powers and that for a time and ahead of the promise that he'll one day totally destroy those powers of evil are kicking back against this and those of us who follow Jesus are caught in the crossfire. And all of this forms the foundation of the sixth point about prayer from this passage, which is this. The believers then make their appeal to God, but it's an appeal that's changed by what has gone before. And it's the second part there which is all important. We're very familiar, if you go back, David, we're very familiar with the shopping list approach to prayer. Please, God, give me this and this and this. And we can be rather uncomfortable about this. But here's the shape of the Lord's Prayer, which we'll be saying a bit later if you go on, David. And that shows that shape of the Lord's Prayer, that it's perfectly fine to ask God for what we want. Once it's placed within the framework of acknowledging who God is, that's the first part there, which we can have highlighted now, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then acknowledging God's sovereignty, that's the next bit. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And it's only then that give us this day our daily bread, the next part, comes in to the prayer. And even then, it's within the context that then follows of the spiritual battle that we're involved in. That request to be forgiven as we forgive others, followed by the request to be delivered from evil. And the point is this. When we acknowledge those really important truths about God and the world in our prayers, not only by, or not necessarily by saying them, but always through believing them, our prayers will then be very different. We need to recognise those Christians' request. Rather than saying, just please take this horrible situation away, they simply ask God to consider the threats being made against them, and then they pray for boldness in proclaiming Jesus and for God's power to continue working through them as they do. So it's a remarkable prayer, and it's one that's guided by what those early Christians believed. It's a prayer actually that shows us how important theology is and how practical theology is in giving our Christian lives guidance and direction and, as I say, liberation. Because it's biblical theology that's all about God and the world, helping us to understand our place and the place of our problems and particularly our suffering within it. Sunday Screen, as was said earlier, is what we're now doing in the evening on the third Sunday of the month. And it's where we show films on a biblical or Christian theme. And as we heard earlier, we're in the middle of a series of films connected with the famous Christian writer C.S. Lewis. And uh, the film basically that we're seeing this evening is the world's most reluctant convert, the film about how C.S. Lewis became a Christian. It's a great film. I do recommend it if you're free this evening come along. 
But the film that we showed last month about C.S. Lewis was this one, Shadowlands. More of a Hollywood film, and one that tells the story of C.S. Lewis's relationship with Joy Gresham, the woman that he fell in love with, uh, married, tragically died of cancer. It's a fantastic film, and at one point there's a scene where C.S. Lewis, played by Anthony Hopkins, is asked about prayer. And what he says is very interesting. He's told to keep praying because God uh, can act in response to that. And he then says this line. He says, I don't pray because it changes God. I pray because it changes me. Now, the gift of prayer is a mystery. And in truth, we're not completely sure how it works. But it does change us. And that's really the final point of this passage, where we see after these believers have prayed that the Holy Spirit is present and those Christians are transformed. In the very last verses of the passage, it says this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. So let's remember that. Let's remember that as we pray, it's something that changes us. The whole approach of that prayer that we heard read to us earlier shows that once those believers uh, set uh, their situation within the context they were facing and what they knew to be true about God and what they knew to be true about his world, that actually what they asked for was really quite different from what we might imagine would have happened if those things hadn't been present. We don't pray because it changes God. We pray because it changes us.